Hey everybody, welcome to episode 248 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is your host Chris McClung coming to you from Austin, Texas. Excited to be chatting with you today. As I record this episode, we are three and a half weeks from really the kickoff to the fall marathon season with Berlin coming at the end of September. And then we're four and a half weeks from London and five and a half weeks from Chicago and Boston. So we are close to those races happening again. And so I'm going to talk about a topic today that I think is appropriate. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about training paces. And one of the points I emphasized in that episode was the disconnect between training and racing paces. That you can train at certain paces, but they may or may not be the same as what you might race at. So from that episode, I got some questions from people about, well, how do I determine my race pace based on what I might know from training results? And so I'm going to dedicate this episode or talk in this episode about the factors to consider when making a decision about your target race pace. So we'll we'll sort of click down from those discussions I've had previously about training paces and help you try to translate that into something to shoot for on race day. We're not going to be talking about race planning. That has come in many, many prior episodes, but we will be talking about how you pick your race pace and the factors to consider when doing so. Before we get there, though, I've got a big topic that just came across the wire today. The Athletics Integrity Unit released their 44-page report detailing the appeal in the Shelby Houlihan case. You might remember in episode 238, right before the Olympic trials, I talked about my perspective, at least on the information we had at that time, based on the announcement of Shelby's suspension. And now we have actually the detail behind that arbitration that went to the Court of Arbitration of Sport and why they decided to confirm that adverse finding and confirm her suspension at that time. So now we have the detail. I read it this morning. It's 44 pages. It's pretty thick and dense at certain points, especially when it comes to some of the technicalities around testing for this this anabolic agent, Nandrolone. But essentially, you you can get all of the details about her appeal, what she was appealing, her case that that was made, the witnesses that came forward for her, including members of the Bowman Track Club, and then of course the reasons why the CAS, the Court of Arbitration of Sport, decided that the result should stand and that her ban should stay, and essentially it all hinges around the feasibility that her burrito was contaminated with the pork in question, the uncastrated boar meat, and whether or not the story that she told had a plausible, was a plausible explanation for her adverse results. So basically they were looking at the very specific reason she provided, saying that my burrito was contaminated. That's why I had this positive result. They looked at that specifically. They're, you know, as a part of this case, they weren't looking at other things. They had to go off of the reasons specifically given by Shelby about why she had this adverse result. Result. So the case essentially hinges around that simple point. You know, is it possible that she 
was contaminated via food to get the nandrolone into her system. And the report details really why they believe that wasn't a a plausible explanation for the nandrolone in her system, including all of the details, many of which we've already discussed, the, the impossibility of her getting a pork burrito instead of the beef one she ordered, even if she had gotten a pork burrito, which they contemplated as well what would be the possibilities that that could be contaminated based on the type of meat that was in was potentially ingested there was also a statement apparently presented from the food truck trailer owner who said that she did serve pork uh, burritos with pork stomach in them on that day but the report details how it's unlikely that pork stomach would cause the contamination. It's also unlikely that she would get the quantities needed to cause contamination, even if it was contaminated. And it goes into the likelihood of getting uncastrated boar meat in the pork supply chain within the U.S. And so it basically goes into all of the details about how a potential contamination could happen and the implausibility that that would be true in this case given all of the variables. So you can go out there. I'll link to it in the show notes so you can read all of the gory details. But as I review it and you know, trying to look at it as, as objectively as possible, as I review it, it's, it does seem implausible that she had poor meat that was contaminated. It does seem implausible given all the evidence that has been discussed. And so in my mind... The logical conclusion from reading that report is either that she is in fact guilty or that she somehow was contaminated through some other means and that was just not considered in this case or that was not presented by Shelby as a plausible explanation and so therefore they couldn't consider other explanations. And I don't even know what those would be, but to me, really the only conclusion you can reach by reading this report and by all of the other evidence that's been discussed and presented is that either she's guilty or there's some other reason that the Nangelone ended up in her system. If you believe that she's innocent. So that's where I landed with it. That's my personal perspective. You don't have to agree, but I would encourage you to go read the report yourself and jump to your own conclusions based on now all of the facts being on the table. So that's my initial reaction based on reading it this morning. Again, I would encourage you to read it and form your own opinions, but that's where I stand with it. Okay, let's jump into my main topic today. We're going to talk about choosing race pace, choosing race pace. As I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, you have training paces. Those are designed to essentially put you in a certain physiological place so that you can get benefits from your training puts you into aerobic development zones, using pace as a proxy to approximate what those should be so that you get the benefits of training. Those training paces will often be associated with racing distances. I might tell you to go run marathon pace or half marathon pace or 10K pace or 5K pace. And what I'm saying is, you know, not necessarily that that's a pace you can hold or that you should hold on race day, but rather that's an equivalent pace that will get you into the right aerobic zones to develop the way you need to ultimately get whatever your goals may be. But 
as I mentioned, those things, training paces and racing paces, may be directly correlated, and sometimes they are, but oftentimes they're not. And so you still want to, as you prep for your fall races, whether they be 10K, half marathon, marathon, still consider and think about, okay, given my training results, what should I be shooting for on race day? And those should be distinct and separate discussions and thought processes. And now is the time, if you're racing in the early fall, September, October, maybe even early November, now is the time to start to think about what should my target pace be for race day. And again, it may be distinct from what you've been training at for a variety of reasons. I'm going to talk about those things to consider. And I've got six variables for you to consider when you're thinking about choosing your race pace. The first one won't surprise any of you, but I want you to all first remind yourself and think about what's your purpose for the day. What's your purpose for the day? That's a little bit distinct from a specific time goal. And it is more about what are you trying to accomplish in this race? What does it mean to you? What will you think about when you cross the line with a certain time on the clock? Think about your purpose for the day. And by the way, this is a good exercise regardless of whether you're choosing your race pace or not. I think it's always important to remind yourself as you approach race day why you're doing it. And those reasons are going to be unique to you, but they could be a whole host of things. It could be about proving something to yourself. It could be about proving something to others. It could be about honoring someone in your life. It could be about honoring a group in your life or representing for a group. It could be anything that means something to you, but you want to remind yourself, what is my purpose for the day. I'll give you an example for me. In 2014, I ran the Boston Marathon. That was the year after the bombing. And I had run a marathon in December of that prior year. And I was going to turn around and run another marathon in April to basically just be a part of the running community on that day to, to show the world that we can bounce back from hard things that, like the bombing in 2013. And I wanted to be a part of that experience. I wanted to be a part of that middle finger, so to speak, to the bomber and those that would have tried to disrupt what the running community represents in Boston. And so I just wanted to be there for that day. So I'd run a race in December, took a little time, and then got back into training, but had some issues. It wasn't a smooth transition. And so as I approached Boston in that year, I had to remind myself in a state where I wasn't maybe as fit as I would have been in December when I actually PR'd that prior race. I had to remind myself, what was the purpose for me being in Boston that day? And it wasn't about running my fastest time. It wasn't about proving anything to myself or others. It was about honoring that day and celebrating that day with the broader running community. And that really meant bringing my best self to that day. And that became the lens upon I looked upon which I looked at what I could contribute to that day. 
And it, it really wasn't about time so much as how I showed up that day. And so that naturally colored how I was thinking about pacing on that day because because it became less about me and optimizing my time on the day. And it became more about how could I show up in a way that will help contribute to the energy and the magic of that specific day in April of 2014. And ultimately what I chose was to actually help support others in our team. And so my mission for that day actually became about supporting our mini rogue community as my contribution to the larger community. And so my race time or plan actually became oriented around what I could do to help others get their goals for the day, how I could help others show up in the best way for them. And I tell you that story only to reflect on this idea that purpose is bigger than your time and it doesn't have to be some magical reason that you know you that would that you might make a movie about but it does need to be something that means something to you that connects you to what you're trying to accomplish and what would make you proud from your result on that day and and so make sure you orient yourself there because it's going to potentially impact how you run and the time you choose. For some of you in these races coming up, it might be about breaking a certain standard, whether that be a personal best for you or whether that be another standard like a Boston qualifying standard out there or a New York qualifying standard. It might be about a standard. And if that's true, great. But still, I want you to think about, okay, what is that standard? What does accomplishing that standard mean to me? What's the purpose of achieving it? What would that represent in my life? And then translate and then think about the implications on your specific goal time. And if it is a Boston qualifier, for example, then great. You have a more prescriptive target. And it might be about going for broke to get that standard in which case this becomes a more easy discussion perhaps. Although with Boston, of course, we've always got to consider the buffer and how far underneath can I go in order to get that buffer that's going to allow me to actually get into the race. So maybe it's not as simple even in that scenario, but it does give you a more definitive target. But but don't don't forget to connect that to your purpose. Now, the other example I'll give here is maybe that first time marathoner or that first time half marathoner. Your goal may be or your purpose may be about finishing for a certain reason. And then the pace or the time of that might be secondary. And I can tell you that for anybody I coach who's a first time marathoner, my first goal for them is always to finish. My second goal for them is always to finish strong and not necessarily to squeeze out every second possible on that day, but rather to finish strong, finish maybe feeling like they left some time on the table so that they get hungry for more and also so that they learn that it is possible to finish a marathon more quickly than you start so that that then creates some muscle memory, so to speak, for future races that that helps you race more effectively and execute better in future races. So, that purpose may actually translate into a more conservative target time 
versus some, again, that are shooting for a specific standard might actually choose to be more aggressive. So think about that purpose of the day. And while it doesn't necessarily have to define for you a specific time, it's going to help you understand how aggressive you want to be or maybe how conservative you should be or where, in fact, you should prioritize your focus. Is it on time or is it how you execute the race or is it how you show up on that day in whatever form that might be, whether that be race or or support or just simply contribute to the energy in the best way that you can. So question number one or point number one to consider would be What's your purpose for the day? Reflect on that and then just think about what are the implications for that purpose on your target time? So that's number one. Number two, I want you to think about your experience level with the race distance, your familiarity level with the race distance. I think this is important and perhaps often overlooked. From my perspective, as a coach, especially if you're newer to a distance. The more important thing when you're new to a distance is how you execute the race versus your absolute time at the end. The more important thing is how you execute the race instead of your absolute time at the end. So what does that mean? That means running a smart race, executing a smart plan, running in progression because by the way for any race 10k or longer the science as well as the world record show us that a negative split or running the second half faster than the first is the optimal way to get your best and fastest time but that's a learned skill that's a learned trait you you don't just necessarily or most of us don't show up just being able to be perfect executors of races especially for those that get into running later in life and that's okay you have to learn that it's a skill to develop and so what I like to see for runners that I coach is that they work on that skill early in their tenure at a given distance so that they can optimize their long-term potential so in other words don't be greedy on those that first race or that second race you want to instead be a little bit more conservative so that you can teach yourself how to execute a race effectively. And that is absolutely facilitated or made easier by a plan that's more conservative. That's just the way it is. Because if you start conservatively, if you teach yourself how to execute a race in progression, then it will stick with you. You will learn the not only the, the mental construct of how to execute that, but also physically your body will learn what it should do, how it should feel, how that progression should happen. And believe me, it's not easy at all, regardless of what pace you're running, but it is significantly facilitated and made easier if you start conservatively, well within the range of what's possible for you. And what that looks like is going to vary person to person, but I like to see someone in a marathon, at least giving that as an example to start here. I like to see someone choose a pace that is five to 10 minutes total time slower 
than what they think they can run physically on the day. And that's roughly 11 to 22 seconds per mile slower than what might look possible from your training. And we'll talk about training results and how to translate that in a second. But, you know, this is sort of that underpinning thought process is, okay, how can I set this race up so that I can execute a conservative plan? And in order to do that, it would apply starting with a conservative target. So 11 to 22 seconds per mile in a marathon, I would, I would consider the same in a half marathon. That will give you that breathing room, so to speak, that'll keep you away from the edge so that you can learn to execute and finish strong. And then, yes, you might get to the end and say, oh, I could have run faster. Great. That's the feeling you want to have because that'll keep you hungry. It'll also, also encourage you to get back out there and do it again. But, but now you've learned how to execute properly so that when you start to get more aggressive with the times, that execution will translate in a way that will allow you to continue continually progress. And a lot of people fight me on this, <laughs> fight me on this perspective because for good reason, people want to be greedy on that first marathon. But what I try to get them to understand is the long-term trajectory, the long-term perspective. Because if you're running that first marathon at a time that's well slower than what you think your ultimate potential is, then it won't matter what time you run on that first marathon. That's not going to affect your long-term potential. But what does matter in terms of long-term potential is learning to execute the race appropriately, execute the race properly, because that's only going to accelerate your ability to get to your long-term potential. And so your time in that first race is really irrelevant as long as you get it done. But what isn't irrelevant, what is relevant is execution, how you accomplish that initial time. That's what I care about as a coach is how do we get there? Because if you can learn to do it the right way, then that's only going to accelerate your trajectory. And, and then when you're running 30, 45 an hour faster later down the road, once you've got more training under your belt, it's not going to matter what you're starting, what your first marathon was. So consider that. And I know it's hard for us to swallow that concept, to be conservative, to try to teach ourselves how to execute a plan. But I promise you it helps and really, really helps you reach that long-term potential if you're willing to do it that way. Now, as you get more experience with the distance, then that's where, you know, presumably if you've done this appropriately, then that's where you've learned to execute the race the, the right way. That's where you can start to take more risks not only with your target time, but even potentially you might choose in a race to be, and I think this is especially true in in races that are half marathon or, or less in distance, you might choose to go out at a pace that's maybe way too aggressive in certain races in order to learn and, and figure out what happens when you do get into a dark place or or maybe you give yourself the possibility for some magic to happen on race day. And so when you get more experience, 
And once you've learned the concept of executing a plan and learning the idea of negative splitting and starting slow and finishing strong, once you've got that embedded with you, in you, then you can actually step into plans and target paces that are more aggressive because you have less to lose and potentially more to learn by getting yourself into a dark place and having to work your work your way out of it. Now, I think you got to be careful with that in the marathon because typically once you get into a dark place in the marathon, it's going to stay that way for the, for the duration. But I, but I do know that in the 5k, the 10k, the half marathon, it's okay to occasionally put yourself into that dark place with the purpose of figuring out what those limits are and how to fight through when you start to get really in over your head. And so that can be a choice that you make, but I I prefer people to make those choices once they have more experience. So that's the point. The second point here is consider your familiarity with the distance. What's your experience level? And if you have less experience, that's okay, but be more conservative, learn how to execute the race properly. And if you have more experience, that's when you can start to take more aggressive paths Now, again, I still firmly believe that even with experience that your optimal path to a personal best is through a negative split race for anything longer than a 5K. So keep that in mind. But I do occasionally approve athletes, especially in training races, to take more aggressive tacks so that they can can learn, so they can get into that pain cave and then figure it out. So again, that's point two, familiarity. Point three to consider is other race results other race results at other distances and even at the same distance. So what have you raced in other distances? And if you're shooting for the marathon, what have you done a half marathon in? What have you done a 10 K in? And if you put those times into the calculator, what does it translate into? And that's not to say that it gives you a definitive answer or output, but it will help you start triangulating around what's possible. Assuming your training is distance focused on whatever distance you're going after. So for example, you may look at your half marathon time from a most recent half, throw that into the McMillan calculator, and it might tell you that you can run a four hour marathon. It might spit that out for you based on your half marathon time, in which case that becomes strong, compelling evidence that you could potentially run that on race day. Now that doesn't mean you have to have that doesn't mean you have to have the perfect other corollary result that says, oh, I can do this, but it's a helpful data point and, and that can even go down to races as short as potentially two miles or 5k, assuming you then pair that with my fourth point, which in a minute, which we'll be talking about training results. So yeah, you look at race results other distances and you look at race results for the same distance and you help use that to help triangulate around what's possible. So if it was the marathon and you're shooting for that sub four and you had a progression and maybe you ran 445 in your first one at 430 and then 415 and now you've been training really hard and consistently for the last four years, seeing that progression of about 15 minutes at a time then that might point to, assuming the training results matter or match, that might point to your ability to break four today because of that history, that trajectory that you've seen 
based on the progress you've had in the past. So look at both things. Look at other distances and how those correlate to your target and also look at your trend in that same distance as data points to consider when you're triangulating around a target race. Now, I think some, some red flags or at least some flags to watch for here is if you have results that are divergently different in what they're telling you. And so if you have a 5K that says one thing and then a 10K that says something different and then a half marathon that says something completely different, the fewer data points that you have that triangulate around the same thing, then obviously that's less compelling evidence of what you can do on race day. But the more data points you have, if you have a bunch of races that start to point towards the same time coming from different distances and you have a history and trajectory in that distance that says, okay, if I continue my progression, I think this is possible, then that's all compelling evidence that you can go for what you might be thinking about. And, and so when you have a bunch of results triangulating around that, then that gives you more confidence to go for it. And when you have less, then that should give you maybe a little less confidence. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but it might be pointing to a more conservative plan that will give you room to execute a strong race and finish strong. And then maybe at the end think, oh, I could have gone faster. So in my opinion, if you miss on this, missing slow is better than missing on the other side because there's so much to be gained from a well-executed negative split race that will carry momentum in the future. But, man, slogging through a race where you overdo it and then the wheels come off and you struggle. Yes, there's stuff to be learned from that too, but it is a tough way to learn it. So consider those other race results and think about how they triangulate around what's possible for you on race day. Number four, training results. Training results. Obviously, you've got to look at how did it feel to run my target race pace in training. And this is where you have to be really honest with yourself. Really honest with yourself about that. And so if you're targeting running nine-minute miles for your marathon and you're, you've done some repeats, maybe some longer intervals at that marathon pace, Maybe you've done some segments inside your long runs at that marathon pace. How does it feel? Does it feel like that's a pace you could hold for 26.2? And by the way, please resist the temptation to go run 20 miles at a target pace in order to prove to yourself that you can do it. That is not how this is how this works. If you've listened to enough episodes of me, you know I would not advocate that. But you should be running smaller segments in training, sometimes on your quality days, sometimes in your long runs, and ask yourself, how did it feel? Was I able to hold it smoothly and consistently? When I got done, was when I think about that run, was it something that felt like I could hold it for 26.2 miles? You don't have to know if that's possible, but you have to at least think, you know, I think I could do that, and be really honest with yourself about it. Now, that's not to say that every workout at that pace or that every run and or segment in a long run at that pace 
is comfortable and smooth. I'm not saying that at all because you're going to have those days that aren't so great. That's okay. That's actually an important part of the process because it helps you learn sometimes how to suffer. But, but still, if you think back to the majority of times that you were running that pace and training in, in intervals or during long runs, then you want to be able to think back and say, okay, for the most part, I was able to do it. I was able to do it cons- comfortably. I was able to do it with a smooth rhythm. And I was able to do it consistently from mile to mile in those training blocks. If that's true, the majority of times, then that's a sign that, hey, this is something I could translate to race day. Another thing you consider if you look back at your training is not just how those runs went at your target race pace, but you're also going to consider how did the other runs go? When I was asked to hit certain paces in training, was I able to do that? Again, it doesn't mean that you have to have perfection. It just means that when you think back to the majority of, of workouts, when you were asked to run a certain pace, were you able to hit those paces within a certain range the majority of the time? If so, that's a sign that you were hitting on the right cylinders at the right times based on what your coach was trying to accomplish with you in training. And that's a sign that all of the pieces will be coming together to help you get the target race or pace that you're after. So consider that global training picture as well. When you were asked to hit 5K pace or 10K pace or half marathon pace, or in the case of running a half marathon pace, when you were asked to hit those paces within a reasonable range, accounting for perhaps the conditions of the summer as we're in now, were you able to do it the majority of the time? Not every time, but the majority of the time. If so, that's a sign, obviously, that's pointing towards your ability to execute those paces on race day. If not, then that's a sign perhaps that you you should be a little bit more conservative. And at this stage in the game with three to five or six weeks left in your training, you're going to have a few more chances perhaps to execute on a different target pace. And this is where I would encourage you to potentially adjust for your race pace, your target race pace in your training so that those final marathon pace intervals you do might be adjusted to a more conservative pace based on how your training is going. And then you can assess that new pace at least once or twice in order to figure out whether or not it seems like an appropriate fit. So when you're thinking about those training results, think about not just the times you were asked to hit the target pace for your race, but also the global picture. How do those other paces feel? And again, doesn't have to be 100% of the time. I think it should probably be, to me, in, as I think about it in my own training, it should be about 80%. should be batting four out of five. Four out of five times you go out there, you're able to do what's asked of you. And then one out of five times, it doesn't go well, and that's okay. Because that's an opportunity to learn and potentially assimilate some of that suffering into your mental training, potentially into how your body deals with pain when you actually feel it on a on race day so you can use that that 80 20 rule about 80 percent of the time it should go 
go right if you're going to lock in on that for your target race pace. If not, if you're less than that, for whatever reason, then think about something more conservative. All right, that's number four. Number five is how much risk are you willing to take? How much risk are you willing to take? Marathon racing, half marathon racing, the times that are possible out there for you are all on a risk spectrum. And if you think about like a bell curve, there is somewhere in the middle where you have a mean of what's possible. If you were to plug in all the variables and and somehow develop a race simulator for what's possible for you, and and then you ran that 10,000 times, it would create something like a bell curve that would have a mean possible race time and it would have potential curves around that that would that would lead to different times you know on on one end you'd have standard or two deviations away you'd have a really fast time that might be possible if all of the variables came true for you perfect weather perfect course you know the best day possible for you that perfect pacing partner that happens to manifest next to you at all times in the race when you needed it and if all the conditions and all the things lined up there's some result on the end of that spectrum that would still be possible but that would be a much smaller probability of happening and then obviously that would move back to the mean possible where you're most likely to finish and then you go the other way where you have results a few standard deviations away from that mean that are going to be ugly because of weather, because of bad day, because you ate something bad the night before that messed with your stomach, because you tripped and fell on a pothole and sprained your ankle and then couldn't finish in the times you wanted. There's going to be results on the other end of that spectrum that are not good, that are not what you would want. And that spectrum exists whether we want to admit it or not. And so what we, the times that we target on that spectrum part of it becomes how much risk am I willing to take given the fitness, the potential scenarios and in circumstances I might encounter. So you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to stomach from a risk standpoint? Do I want to take a lot of risk or do I want to be really conservative? We've already talked about some of the variables of that equation, including your purpose for the day, including your experience level at the distance. But another one I want to submit here is how comfortable would you be okay with various outcomes? In other words, what kind of result do you need? What kind of result do you need mentally in order to give yourself what you might want on the other side? And for some people, it could be about needing a win. You know, some people I coach that maybe have had a series of bad races in a row, or maybe they've had a series of injuries that have led to some suboptical, suboptimal outcomes, perhaps not doing races that they wanted to do. And, and so oftentimes we get to race day and it's, and it's a situation where they just need a victory. They need to be able to walk away with a win so they can build confidence that can carry them forward in training. And in that case, if you need a win, then it naturally points to let's take a more conservative path so that we can get a win so that we can finish strong and then be hungry for more. Other people, it might be about regardless of outcome, 
It's wanting to go for it and not caring whether or not they actually get the result, but just wanting to put themselves in that the best position to go get a result that they're looking for, but that maybe they already have the peace of mind for if I get it, great. I would love that. But if I don't, I'm okay because at least I'll know that I gave everything for it. And that's a mental place that people might be in as well, in which case that lends itself towards a more aggressive tact potentially because you can throw caution to the wind and just go for it and not worry so much about the mental damage that you might carry with you afterwards. That's not to say you won't be disappointed or sad if it doesn't work out, but that is to say that if you're in a position and you're ready to accept failure and move on from it, then that potentially points to a more aggressive, riskier tact. And so think about your risk tolerance. Think about the type of result you want and where on that bell curve of risk you want to fall and what you'd be comfortable with comfortable with and happy with from an outcome perspective because that will help inform your goals for race day. Risk tolerance, an important part of the equation. Okay, lastly, and what I like to do with these with considering your potential race time is really take these first five variables assuming that you will have good conditions and a good course. Take these first five variables and figure out, okay, if I have good conditions on a relatively flat course, what would I shoot for? And then number six, we have to adjust for the conditions. So then we have to adjust for the conditions. So once you have established, I can run nine minutes per mile for a marathon on a good day with a good course based on my purpose, based on my experience level, based on my training, based on my prior race results, and based on my risk tolerance. If all of those things are pointing towards a nine minute per mile, given a flat course on a a good day, then you have to consider the last point. And sometimes this consideration doesn't necessarily even come until the very end when you know what the weather might be. But then at some point you have to consider the conditions that you will face. What's the course profile? How hilly, how hilly is it? And of course, what's the weather going to be like on the day? And then make your adjustments for that. And let's take, let's take each of those in turn quickly. We'll start with the course. You know, how hilly is this course? And this one's tricky because there isn't always necessarily a perfect translation to elevation change on a course and how that should impact your race pace and time. And so I like to think about it both top down and bottom up. I'll think about it in in generalities, knowing the elevation change on a course. And then when I'm actually developing a race plan, I'll sort of build it back up again from the bottom based on the undulations on the course and then calibrate between the two. But you have to add, obviously, if you have a hilly course or if you have a really downhill course. There's actually a pretty good website called findmymarathon.com. They have a marathon converting calculator or conversion calculator that essentially allows you to compare between races. And so you can select up to three races and and it will do some math to sort of figure out how you compare the times based on the terrain at the various races. It's not perfect, but I can tell you based on at least a couple of data points I've looked at comparing the Austin Marathon versus the Houston Marathon, for example, 
Houston being really, really flat, Austin being pretty hilly, rolling hills the entire way, that I think their conversion calculator actually, in that case, in, in that comparison, jives with my own personal experience, having both run and coached both of those races, which is to say that Austin Marathon has about 1,200 feet of elevation gain and 1,200 feet roughly of elevation lost. And that translates to a race that's about two and a half minutes slower than a flat course. So I, I always tell people it's two to three minutes depending, but two to three minutes slower than a Houston. And the Find My Marathon conversion calculator actually spits out something very close to two and a half minutes in the in that difference. And so if I'm adjusting for Austin versus Houston, then I've got to add two and a half minutes roughly to the time, which is about five seconds per mile. So consider the course. And again, you can do it top down, but I also consider, consider that you should do that bottom up. You should also then look at the course and figure out based on the terrain, what's a reasonable race plan? How should I execute this race? And then triangulate it from the bottom up as well. But of course, hills, terrain, they will affect you. So account for that in the equation and, and then also give yourself credit for it, credit for it on the other side. You know, a lot of people just compare absolute times, which is great. I get it. You know, we all want to understand what's the very fastest I can run a marathon, but I can tell you that, you know, you might have a slower time on a certain course or maybe a certain weather day, and that could be better in the grand scheme or more impressive or something you should be prouder of than a race where you ran a faster absolute time because you had better conditions. I know for me, I still consider perhaps my best marathon was one where I ran 247 on a day that ended up in the 75 to 80 degree range versus a 245 I ran in perfect conditions. So for me, I actually put a lot of pride in that 247 because of the conditions. And so, yes, you have to adjust for it. Course being one of them. Secondly, obviously you have to adjust for weather. If it's going to be hot, you can't fight physics and chemistry. Heat is a problem when it comes to chemical reactions. And so your muscles cannot execute respiration the way they need to, to make you go if there's too much heat. And that's only one impact the heat can have on you in terms of causing you to slow down. And so you have to adjust for the weather. A general rule of thumb that I use, which isn't perfect, but is decent, is that for every five degrees over 55, that it is at the start of a race, you have to add about 10 seconds per mile to your target time. And if it was 65, you'd add 20 seconds and you keep going up from there. And believe me, that starts to look really funny when you have times where you're having to adjust by 30 or 40 seconds because of weather per mile. But I promise you, that's a fairly good rule of thumb. And I promise you, you do have to make those adjustments. You just can't fight physics and chemistry, it will come back to get you. And so if it's going to be warm, and especially if it's going to be warm and humid, you have to make those adjustments. And you can get more specific conversion calculators online. I believe Hansen's has a pretty good one on heat and humidity that will allow you to try to triangulate around what's possible on given the conditions. 
but you, you'll only make that final adjustment on temperature in that last few days based on what the weather's going to look like as you get a more refined weather forecast. So adjust for the course, the terrain, the hills, and then of course adjust for weather. And you have to do both so that you can then figure out what's possible and then go do that. And then go execute that, put together a plan to execute that on race day. So there you go. Those are the six variables. Purpose, experience, and familiarity. Previous race results. Your training results. Number five, your risk tolerance. Your willingness to take risks on the day. And then number six, the conditions that you will face given the course, given the weather. You have to consider all of those variables and then triangulate around a target time. And once you do that, execute that target time in your final workouts as you might have race pace work and then develop a race plan around it and go for it. Go for it. Do the thinking so that you can not overthink it once you get to close once you get close to race day. And once you lock in, I'm telling you other than of course making adjustments for weather last minute, once you lock in based on these variables, don't look back. Don't second guess yourself. Don't have an A, B, and C plan because that's not going to serve you well. I mean, as, as Kipchoge says, you can't chase two rabbits at once. The same is true on race day. You can't chase two times. Have one plan. Have a plan A based on all these variables that is, is very thoughtfully created and then just go for it. Put the other plans or thoughts out of your mind and just go for it. You have to be singularly focused on race day. Otherwise, it's going to be tough. So once you get the plan, once you get the time, go for it. Put all the other questions out of your mind. All right. I'm excited for this fall racing season. It has been too long since we've had real races happening. Knock on wood that it's still happening with with all the appropriate precautions in place and I can't wait to start seeing results. I personally will be there in Boston racing myself and we'll also be potentially putting together a little meetup for any listeners who might want to chat with me that weekend. So stay tuned for that information coming as I sort it out. Otherwise, good luck in your final training. If you are racing, go get that work done and then pick a time and go for it. All right, we'll wrap this episode here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.